You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As I have mentioned countless times in the past on the podcast, I do like to cover the psychology and the killers that commit the crimes that we talk about here because I do genuinely feel that studying people and what makes or made them tick can be helpful to help understand crime as a whole. However, one thing that I feel that a lot of podcasts do tend to forget is the victims of the crimes that are committed. The people who are innocent at the center of the story and the people who are no longer with us. That is what I also like to cover any time that we do a deep dive into things like serial killers. This week, we're going to talk about the timeline a little bit more, and we're going to cover what we can about the people who lost their lives at the hands of one of the worst serial killers that the world has ever seen. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 82 of Gone But Never Forgotten, part 2 on John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. Last week I ended the episode by telling you about John Wayne Gacy's second engagement and second marriage to Carol Hoff. It's believed that there was certainly some element of Gacy that was trying to fit in with society at large with his marriage. Carol and her children had just been through a divorce and because John and Carol had dated previously in college, he had an in with her. A lot of people, especially during these times, would set out to find someone that they could marry and live with so that they looked more socially acceptable to those around them. As we talked about in episode one, Gacy certainly was a tryhard as he tried to get approval from everyone around him throughout much of his life. It's believed that Carol may have been a part of that ploy as well. Over the years 1971 and 1972, it appeared that Gacy was really trying to get his life to a place that he was happy with. Whether that was all a part of creating a persona to cover up crimes that he had committed and would commit, or because he wanted to be admired and respected, something that he never received from his father, or a little of both, is up to interpretation but Gacy would also establish a part-time construction business that was called PDM Contractors in 1971. PDM stood for painting, decorating, and maintenance. Gacy worked as a cook at a restaurant called Bruno's during the day and started to work in the evening for PDM, starting with minor repairs 
and then expanding into interior maintenance and design and landscaping. Over the years, as we will talk about, Gacy was able to use PDM as a way to meet and take advantage of many young men over the years. Most of the people that worked with Gacy were high school students and other young men. Gacy would utilize his position as the boss to proposition workers for sex or sexual favors so that the young men could use his vehicles and his equipment. He also would offer promotions and more work to the boys who gratified him. The first known murder that was committed by Gacy would occur on January 3, 1972. Gacy said that he had had a family party in the evening of January 2nd and decided to drive to the Chicago Civic Center in the Loop area of Chicago. The Loop is one of Chicago's designated community areas and it is the main business district of the city. It also includes the main intersection of downtown Chicago. Gacy said that he went there to view ice sculptures that were on display, and his visit was in the wee hours of the morning. It was there that he met a young 16-year-old boy named Timothy Jack McCoy. He met Timothy at the Greyhound bus terminal and lured him into his car by offering a tour of Chicago. Timothy was on his way home from a Christmas vacation in Eaton Rapids, Michigan, and was en route to his father's home in Omaha, Nebraska. With it being the wee hours of the morning and Timothy's connecting bus not arriving until noon, he took Gacy up on his offer. Gacy would drive Timothy around and then offered Timothy a place to stay until his bus was coming. That place, of course, was Gacy's home. Gacy would claim that he had awakened early the next morning and that he found Timothy standing in the door of his bedroom with a kitchen knife. Gacy said that he jumped out of his bed and that Timothy was alarmed and threw both of his arms up into the air to surrender, and in doing so, he had accidentally cut Gacy's arm. Gacy said that he then took the knife from Timothy, smashed his head against the bedroom wall, and then Timothy had fought back, kicking Gacy in the stomach. Gacy then said that he grabbed Timothy and told him that, that he was going to kill him. He wrestled Timothy to the floor and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him with all of his weight. Gacy said that he left Timothy dying there on the floor and cleaned the knife off in the bathroom. He then went into the kitchen and realized that Timothy had set the table for two and was going to cook breakfast for both of them. According to Gacy, everything was a huge misunderstanding. Gacy would bury Timothy in his crawlspace of the house and later cover the grave with a layer of concrete to cover the evidence and the smell. Whether the story of how this first murder went down was true or not, Gacy would later say that he listened to the death rattle of Timothy's last breaths and he had an orgasm, and he realized that death was the ultimate thrill for him. Timothy would be one of few out-of-state victims of Gacy, and he also was the only one that was stabbed to death. Timothy was a down-to-earth and outgoing boy who was described by friends as the life of the party. Timothy was known to have hitchhiked many times, which was common in the 1970s, and likely that was why he was not afraid to get into the car with Gacy in the first place.
Timothy's family has said over the years that they don't believe the series of events that Gacy came forward with. They don't believe that Timothy would have willingly got into the car with Gacy in the first place. In the years between the first and second known murders, Gacy's life would go through many twists and turns. In 1973, Gacy was doing so well with PDM that he quit cooking and started to do his own work full-time. Also during those years, Gacy was living with Carol and her children as they were still married. The two, though, would fight often about various things. One of the things that really started to get under the skin of Carol was the fact that she saw Gacy coming home with young men at all hours of the day and night. She even witnessed many times Gacy coming home in the wee hours of the morning with some of those men and boys. Carol got angry enough that at one point she confronted Gacy and asked him if he was gay and asked him what the deal was with all of those young men. Gacy would tell her matter-of-factly that it was none of her business what he was doing and that she should mind her own business. Those arguments would continue as the two of them stopped having sex and stopped being intimate, but they still continued to try and make their marriage work. Finally, in 1975, Gacy told her that he was bisexual, and that was when he told her that the two of them would never have sex again. In October of 1975, things in their marriage finally came to a head when the two had a massive fight over their finances. Carol would finally ask Gacy for a divorce, and he agreed to go through with it. She and her daughters, however, did continue to live with Gacy until February of 1976, when they got their own apartment. On March 2nd of 1976, their divorce would be finalized, and the paperwork would have a lie. The divorce was said to have been agreed upon under the pretenses that Gacy was having multiple affairs with other women. No mention at all of the men in his life were made. Also by 1975, Gacy was working a lot and employing quite a few people. Himself, he was working up to 16 hours every single day. In 1975, Gacy would also start to dabble into one of the things that he would become most known for after he was discovered. He started to work as a clown. Through his membership at a Moose Lodge, he had become aware of a clown collective that served as a collective for members to network gigs at things like fundraisers, parades, hospitals, and more. Gacy became a part of that collective and created two personas that he would perform as. The first was Pogo the Clown, who he described as being a happy clown and one that tried to make everyone laugh. And the second was Patches the Clown, whose persona was more of a serious clown. Gacy would rarely make any money at the gigs that he performed at as a clown, but he said that he took great gratification out of doing so. He claimed that being a clown allowed him to return to his childhood, something that at times was not always great for him, but he loved to be happy-go-lucky and seemingly operate outside of the adult world. There's certainly something to be said about that. It seems to me that Gacy was not someone that welcomed adulthood in most forms or fashions. 
He preferred the company of younger men, and he liked to perform as a clown for the childlike wonder that that provided. There's certainly a pattern here that is haunting for anyone that saw Pogo or Patches before Gacy was discovered to be a serial killer. The second murder that Gacy likely committed is still known today as Body 28, and was a male between the ages of 14 and 18, who was killed at some point between January 3rd of 1972 and July 31st of 1975. This victim was buried in the crawl space under Gacy's home. That brings us to the second identified murder that Gacy committed according to Gacy himself. On July 31st of 1975, over three years later, an 18-year-old who worked for Gacy at PDM named John Bukovic would go missing. Bukovic's car would be found parked at the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence, and inside of the car were his jacket and his wallet, and the keys were still in the ignition. The day before Bukovic disappeared, he had confronted Gacy because he had over two weeks of outstanding pay for work that he had done for PDM. Bukovic's father had even called Gacy after he went missing. Gacy said that he was happy to help look for his son and was sorry to hear that Bukovic had run away. Police, of course, would come and question Gacy because he was an employer, and Gacy said that Bukovic and two friends had come to his house demanding money, but that the two of them had reached a compromise and the three young men had left. Over the following three years, Bukovic's family would call police more than 100 times, and they asked police to look further into Gacy, but that never happened. Gacy would later admit that he saw Bukovic getting out of his car, and he waved him down to get his attention. Gacy said that the young man approached his car and said that he wanted to talk to him. Gacy would take him back to his house to settle the issue of the missing and overdue wages. Once there, Gacy said that he gave Bukovic a drink and then tricked him into a pair of handcuffs. Gacy then said that he sat on his chest for a while before he strangled him to death. He would then put the body in his garage with the plans to bury it in the crawl space again, but when his wife and stepdaughters returned home, he instead buried the body under the concrete floor of the tool room in his garage. Obviously, 1975 would be a major year in the life of Gacy. His divorce was incoming. He admitted to being bisexual to his wife, and his business was really starting to grow. Gacy would also say that 1975 would be the year when he finally seemed to come to terms with who he was. He said that that was the year that he started to increase the frequency that he would go looking for sex with young males. Neighbors would even say that they started to notice major changes in Gacy's life. He would come and go at odd hours of the day and night. They saw lights on in the wee hours of the morning and they started to see more and more young males with Gacy. Hauntingly, one neighbor would even say that they had heard for several years the sounds of muffled, high-pitched screaming, shouting, and crying that would awaken them from deep sleeps in the middle of the night. 
When I read statements like that, I cannot help but wonder why people do not call police when they experience something like that. If you hear someone yelling and shouting, that's one thing. However, to hear muffled screams that are still loud enough to wake you and then shrug those noises off, that's crazy to me. People need to realize that back then and nowadays, you just do not know everything about a person. That seems like a situation that would certainly have me calling 911 for some kind of welfare check at the very least. It would seem that things drastically changed for Gacy after his wife and her daughters moved out of his home. At that point, Gacy knew that he would always have the house to himself and that that would mean far less checks and balances on him and on his actions. One month after his divorce was finalized in court, Gacy would abduct an 18-year-old named Daryl Sampson. Daryl was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6th of 1976. Daryl was a brilliant young man who planned to marry and have a family. He worked in Libertyville for a carpeting company and came to Gacy's home under the pretense of a job offer. Gacy would bury him under the dining room of his home in the joists of the floorboard with a section of cloth lodged in his throat. Daryl was remembered by his mom Dolores Jean Vance and his father Julius Sampson, as well as his brother Harold and his half-brother Gary. Only five weeks later, on May 14th of 1976, a 15-year-old named Randall Reffitt disappeared in the afternoon shortly after returning home after a dental appointment. The last time he was seen was by his grandmother that afternoon. Randall was remembered by his parents Charles Reffitt and Myrtle Reffitt. Just hours after Randall was last seen by his grandmother, a 14-year-old boy named Samuel Stapleton disappeared while he was walking home from the apartment of his sister. Samuel was Gacy's youngest victim. A bracelet that was found on one of the victims in Gacy's crawlspace would lead Samuel's family to believe that Samuel had been killed. His body would be identified by an x-ray of his skull on November 14th of 1979. Both boys were friends with one another, and both boys would be buried together in the crawlspace of Gacy's home. It's believed that both of them were murdered together on that same evening. On June 3rd of 1976, Gacy would kill a 17-year-old boy named Michael Bonin. Michael was traveling from Chicago to Waukegan when he came across Gacy. Gacy strangled Michael with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom of his house. Michael is remembered by his parents Lawrence and Shirley Bonin and his half-sister Patricia Vasquez. Between June 13th and August 6th of 1976, four more victims were murdered by John Gacy. On June 13th, Gacy would kill a 16-year-old boy named William Carroll. William was one of the bodies that was found in the mass grave that Gacy created in his crawlspace. William had had a hard life growing up in a family that, uh, that was considered to be very poor. 
There were reports that William was involved in sex work at his young age and that he also received money for procuring younger boys for older men. Sadly, it is easy to see then how he wound up ensnared in the traps of Gacy. William was identified with dental records when his remains were found in Gacy's crawlspace. He is remembered by his parents, William and Violet Carroll, and his brothers, Robert and his sister, Caroline. Around August 5th of 1976, a 16-year-old boy from Minnesota named James Hackinson was killed by Gacy. James was last heard from on August 5th when he phoned home to talk to his family. It's believed that that call may have emanated from Gacy's own house. James had run away from his home in 1976 and is described as a funny, good-natured, but troubled boy. It's not known how James and Gacy came into contact, but Gacy was notorious by now for looking for young men who were gay, alone, or looking for work. He was identified about 41 years later, on July 19th of 2017, after his brother and sister provided DNA to investigators. James died from suffocation. He was remembered by his parents Donald Hackinson and June Pachan, as well as his three siblings. His body would be buried in the crawl space as well, underneath the body of a 17-year-old boy named Rick Johnson. Rick was last seen alive on August 6th, and it is believed that Rick was picked up off of the street by Gacy. He was remembered by his parents, Kenneth and Esther Johnston. In the period between Rick and the next known victim, there are three bodies that are unidentified. One of the bodies was believed to have been murdered between June 13th and August 5th of 1976, and was a male aged between 23 and 30 years of age. The second was believed to have been murdered between August 6th and October 5th, and was a male between 17 and 22 years of age. And the third was believed to have been murdered between August 6th and October 24th of 1976, and was a male between the ages of 15 and 24 years of age. All three bodies were found in the crawlspace. On October 24th, Gacy kidnapped and killed two teenage friends, Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. Kenneth was 16 years old and Michael was 14 years old. The two boys were last seen outside of a restaurant at Clark Street and Diversity Parkway, which was an intersection that Gacy had used to pick up many of his victims. Dental records and x-rays of an arm that Kenneth had previously broken were used to identify his body on March 29th of 1980. Over the years, though, Michael's mom has held strong and seemingly had DNA testing done to prove that one of the bodies did not belong to Michael. To date, he is still listed as a victim of Gacy's, however. Kenneth is remembered by his parents Audrin and Mary Parker, and Michael is remembered by his mom Sherry Marino, who long fought to prove that her son was not a Gacy victim, and keeping hope alive that he was still also alive. 
Only two days after that, a 19-year-old construction worker named William Bundy disappeared after informing his family that he was going to attend a party. Bill, as he was known by those close to him, was an accomplished diver and gymnast at Nicholas Sen High School. William died of suffocation and his body was buried beneath the master bedroom. It's believed that William had worked for Gacy in the past or was still working for him at the time that he was murdered. He was identified on November 8th of 2011 because of DNA that was submitted by his siblings. Between November and December of 1976, Gacy would kill a 21-year-old named Francis Wayne Alexander. Francis had last got in touch with his family via phone call sometime in November. Francis was buried in the crawl space right underneath the room that Gacy used as his office space for the contracting company. The reason and the way that Gacy and Alexander had come into contact is unknown, as is his cause of death. However, he was found with a piece of cloth inside of his mouth, so it's believed that he may have died from suffocation. Francis was identified as a victim only in October of 2021 after family submitted DNA to a genealogy website. In December of 1976, another young man that worked for PDM, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. His girlfriend said that she last saw him outside of her home after he dropped her off at home following a date. Gregory had worked for PDM for less than three weeks before his disappearance. He had told family that one of the jobs that Gacy had him do was digging trenches for drain tiles in Gacy's crawlspace. Gregory's car would later be found abandoned in Niles, Illinois. His family would reach out to Gacy when he went missing to find out if he knew where Gregory may have gone. Gregory's girlfriend would even go to Gacy's home to ask him about Gregory, but Gacy told her and the family that Gregory told him that he was going to run away. He also told them that he had received a phone call and a message on his answering machine from Gregory not long after he had disappeared. When asked if he could play the message, Gacy said that he had deleted it. Gregory's body would be identified through dental records in January of 1979. Gacy would say at trial that Gregory had dug his own grave. Gregory is remembered by his parents John and Eugenia Godzik. 19-year-old John Sheets would be lured to Gacy's house on January 20th, 1977 because he was going to buy Gacy's Plymouth Satellite. John would be strangled to death in the spare bedroom of Gacy's home. In the crawlspace, a Marine West High School ring was found that belonged to John. His remains would be identified through dental records in January of 1979. He was remembered by his parents Richard and Rosemary. Two months after that, on March 15th, a 20-year-old man from Michigan named John Prestige would disappear. John was last seen leaving a restaurant in near Northside. Shortly before he disappeared, John had been telling people that he had received work from a local contractor. His body would be buried in the crawlspace above the body of Francis Alexander. 
Dental records provided by his mom confirmed in January of 1979 that John was indeed a victim of Gacy. Gacy would murder one other unidentified male between March 15th and July 5th of 1977. The male was between the ages of 17 and 21 and was found buried in the crawlspace. On July 5th, Gacy would kidnap and murder a 19-year-old named Matthew Bowman, who was from Crystal Lake. Matthew had last been seen by his mother when she dropped him off at the train station. Matthew had been on his way to Harwood Heights for a court appearance regarding an unpaid ticket that he had in his name. Matthew would be identified as a victim on January 27th of 1979. In August, one of Gacy's employees, Michael Rossi, who also lived with Gacy between May 23rd of 1976 and April of 1977, would be arrested when he was found driving John Sheets' car. He was caught because he was caught stealing gasoline for that vehicle. The gas station attendant remembered the license plate when the gas was stolen, and police traced the car to Gacy's home where it was located. Gacy would tell officers that John had sold him the car in February before he ran away because he needed money. The police did not look any further into the case, though, other than letting John's mom know that her son had sold his car before he disappeared. 18-year-old Robert Gilroy was the son of a Chicago police sergeant, and he was last seen alive on September 15th of 1977. Robert lived only four blocks from Gacy's home, and he was murdered and put into the crawlspace. The case surrounding Robert is interesting because it does lead credence to something that Gacy said many times, that he was not working alone, and that he had one or more people who acted as accomplices with some of the murders. The reason that Robert's case stands out is that John Gacy was in Pittsburgh at the time that he disappeared. He was, Gacy was in Pittsburgh between September 12th and September 16th, and it was in that time that Robert would go missing. Robert's remains were identified on January 6th of 1979, and he was remembered by his father Robert Edward Gilroy and his brother Joseph Gilroy. Only 10 days after that, 19-year-old former U.S. Marine John Mowry would disappear after leaving his mother's house to walk back to his own apartment. He had only been home for a short time after completing 18 months in the Marines. Tragically, his sister Judith had also been murdered six years prior to John's murder. Gacy strangled John and buried his body underneath the master bedroom of his home inside the crawlspace. The remains of John were confirmed with dental records on January 27th of 1979. On October 17th, a 21-year-old man from Minnesota named Russell Nelson would disappear. The last time that Russell was seen, he was outside of a bar in Chicago. Russell was believed to have been looking for contracting work in Chicago, and the last time that he was heard from was calling his mom to wish her a happy birthday on October 17th of 1977. Russell was murdered and buried underneath the guest bedroom in the crawlspace. 
Russell's remains were identified on January 6th of 1979 through dental records. This stretch in 1977 was crazy, as there were six young men murdered between September 15th and the end of the year. Less than four weeks after murdering Russell, Gacy would kidnap and kill a 16-year-old boy named Robert Winch, who was from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Robert was also buried in the crawlspace. Investigators would find a distinctive belt that they believed belonged to Robert, but he would ultimately be identified on September 12, 1979, by markings on bones that he had previously broken in an accident. A 20-year-old father of a 3-year-old son, Timmy, Tommy Bowling would disappear after leaving a Chicago bar as well. He was murdered and buried in the crawlspace under Gacy's home. Tommy's sister said that he was involved in drugs at the time of his disappearance. Tommy would be identified on September 12th of 1979 by his wedding ring and his dental records. He was remembered by his parents, Tommy Bowling Sr. and Arvinia Bowling, and his sister, Sandra Kay. Only three weeks after that, another U.S. Marine would be kidnapped and murdered by Gacy. David Talsma was 19 years old, and he disappeared after telling his mom that he was headed to Hammonds, India. Gacy would strangle Talsma with a ligature and bury him in the crawlspace close to the body of John Morey. David would be identified as a victim of Gacy on his 21st birthday, November 16, 1979, and he was identified through x-rays of his left arm. He was remembered by his father, Peter Talsma, and his brother, Gary Talsma. On December 30th, closing out an incredibly deadly run, Gacy would abduct a 19-year-old college student named Robert Donnelly from a bus stop in Chicago, and he did that at gunpoint. Gacy would drive Robert home where he would rape, torture, and repeatedly dunk Robert's head into a bathtub until Robert ultimately passed out. Gacy would taunt Robert, asking him if he was having fun playing games. Robert would ultimately ask Gacy to kill him because he was in so much pain, to which Gacy told him that he was getting around to it. After several hours, shockingly, Gacy would drive Robert to his work and release him, warning him that if he went to the police, the police would not believe him. Robert did, however, go to the police. Gacy would be questioned by police on January 6th of 1978, and Gacy admitted to having had slave sex with Robert, but he also said that everything the two had done was consensual. The police believed Gacy and filed no charges. It really is sad how often that we come across this in cases that I cover here on the podcast. So many times where police were that close to catching on to someone or something and completely missed it. One always has to wonder if that is because the police are inept or because the killers are that good at covering their stories. Either way, it's heartbreaking every single time it comes up. 
Likely, a major part of this in Gacy's case was that he had worked so hard to have two entirely different personas, much like he did even when he was performing as a clown. Obviously, Gacy was a cold-hearted killer when nobody was around, but in the public eye, this was a man who was political, a man who ran a profitable business, and a man that had many people in the community over to his home often for parties. Those guests included the police that were likely investigating all of the allegations that came up against Gacy. Sadly, having the police get that close did not stop John Wayne Gacy. In February, he would kill 19-year-old William Kindred. William had disappeared on February 16th after he had told his fiance that he was heading to a bar for the evening. William would be the final victim of Gacy that would be buried in the crawlspace. He was identified on May 21st of 1979 via dental records. William was remembered by his girlfriend, Mary Jo Paulus, and his mother, Lola Woods, and his brother, James Michael Woods. On March 21st of 1978, Gacy would lure a 26-year-old man named Jeffrey Rignall into his car. Gacy would chloroform Jeffrey and drive him to Gacy's home. Gacy would then restrain Jeffrey's arms and head using a pillory, which is a device that was formerly used for punishment and public humiliation. He was, this was done to him while his feet were locked in another device. Gacy would tell Jeffrey that he had complete control over him and he was going to do whatever he wanted, however he wanted, and whenever he wanted. He would then rape and torture Jeffrey using various items including lit candles, chloroform, and whips until he fell unconscious. Gacy would then drive Jeffrey to Lincoln Park in Chicago where he dumped him unconscious but alive. Jeffrey would manage to stumble to the apartment of his girlfriend, and police were told about the assault, but they did not investigate Gacy at all. Jeffrey was able to recall the car, the trip on the Kennedy Expressway, and particularly the side streets. Jeffrey would stake out the area with two friends, see the Oldsmobile that Gacy drove, and follow him home. Police would then get an arrest warrant for Gacy, and they would arrest him on July 15, 1978. Gacy would face a trial for assault and battery against Jeffrey. At this point, as mentioned, victims of Gacy were not able to be buried in the crawlspace any longer because there was no more room to do so. Gacy would later tell investigators that he had considered putting bodies into his attic, but he was worried that the bodies would leak their fluids into his house. Instead, Gacy chose to start dumping bodies off of the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River. Gacy said that he threw five bodies into that river in 1978, and one of them he believed had fallen on to a passing barge. Only four bodies would ever be recovered. The first victim that was thrown into the Des Plaines River was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. Timothy was killed in mid-June after leaving his Dover Street apartment in order to buy some cigarettes. 
Not long before he disappeared, Timothy had told his roommates that he had found work doing contracting work with a contractor on the northwest side of Chicago. Friends said that Timothy would frequent gay bars and that there, that may have been where he met Gacy. His body was recovered on June 30th of 1978 near the lock at Dresden Island and Dam in the Illinois River. He was identified through fingerprints. On November 4th, Gacy would kill 19-year-old Frank Landingen. Frank was last seen alive by his father when he saw Frank walking along Foster Avenue. Frank's naked body was found close to an inlet in Des Plaines River by two men who were hunting for ducks on November 12th of 1978. He had died from asphyxia after a pair of bikini briefs were stuffed into his throat. He was identified by his father, fingerprints, and dental records. His death had also been previously attributed to Gacy when some of his belongings were found in Gacy's home on December 26th of 1978. He was remembered by his parents, Francisco and Dorothy Lee Miller. On November 24th, a 20-year-old man named James Mazzara from Elmwood Park would disappear after having a Thanksgiving dinner with his family. James had told his sister the day before he disappeared that he was working a construction job and doing pretty well for himself. Gacy would admit to killing a man named Mojo and dumping him in the Des Plaines River. Mazera's nickname was Mojo. His body would be found in the Des Plaines River on December 28th of 1978. He was identified through fingerprints. And then... Everything changed for Gacy. On the afternoon of December 11, 1978, Gacy would go to the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines to talk about a potential remodeling job for the store with the owner of the store, Phil Torf. By this time, Gacy was making over $200,000 a year in revenue with his contracting work, which is the equivalent of $740,000 today. That is a lot of money. Casey was also working as a supervisor for PE Systems, which was a firm that looked after remodeling of drugstores, which is what brought him to Nissan Pharmacy. While Gacy was there, one of the employees at the store, 15-year-old Robert Peast, overheard Gacy say that he hired teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 per hour, which was almost twice what Robert was making at the pharmacy. At the end of Robert's shift, his mom would show up at the pharmacy to pick him up as the family had plans to celebrate her birthday together that night. Robert would tell his mom to wait for him because he needed to go talk to a contractor that wanted to talk to him about a job. He left the store around 9 p.m. and promised to be back quickly. Robert would be killed shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's home. Gacy said that he gave Robert a pop before asking him if there was anything that he wouldn't do for the right price. Robert told Gacy that he didn't mind working hard for his money, and Gacy told Robert that good money could be made by hustling, and then Gacy would trick him into putting on handcuffs before saying, quote, I'm going to rape you, and you can't do anything about it. Unquote. 
and Robert began to cry. Gacy would then rape him and suffocate him. When Robert failed to come back to the store, his family filed a missing persons report with the police in Des Plaines. The manager of the store told police the name of the contractor that he had been in contact with and said that John Gacy was likely the contractor that Robert had left the store to talk to. This time, police decided to look further into Gacy. Lieutenant Joseph Kozinsack believed that Robert was not a runaway and that he would come across the outstanding battery charge against Gacy in Chicago, and he also found that Gacy had served a prison sentence for the sodomy of a 15-year-old boy when in Iowa. The next night, the lieutenant and two other officers would visit Gacy's home, and Gacy said that he had seen two youths working at the pharmacy and asked one of them a question. But he said that he had never offered a job to anyone and that he had only gone back to the pharmacy around 8 p.m. because he was called by Torf, who said that he had left his appointment book at the pharmacy. Gacy said that he would come by the police station and formally make a statement later that evening. When police asked him to come immediately, he said that his uncle had just died. When the police pressed on, asking when he would come in, Gacy told them that they were being rude and that they were not respecting the dead. How ironic that statement really is. Gacy would show up at the police station at 3.20 a.m. and he was covered in mud. Gacy said that he had been in a car wreck and Gacy denied having any involvement in the disappearance of Robert and said that he had not offered Robert a job. Gacy again said that Torf called him back to the store, which Torf categorically denied, and he also left a prepared statement with police telling them of all his movements on that day. I think that's where we'll leave things today after a long episode. John Wayne Gacy at this point had killed at least 33 young men. 26 of the victims were buried under his home in the crawlspace, and three others were buried in other locations on his property. Four, although Gacy said five, were thrown into the Des Plaines River. This truly was an awful, awful, horrible man. We talked last episode about Gacy and his childhood, but one certainly cannot draw a parallel between an abusive home and 33 murders. If you believe Gacy about his first murder, you have to believe that if it was truly an accident, it was certainly a turning point in his life. When Gacy killed that first young man, he realized that he enjoyed killing and that it gratified him in ways that nothing else could. Either a monster was created or a monster was awakened on that day inside of John Gacy and clearly he was able to kill for so long because he had done a good enough job building his fake persona for the world to see and judge him based off of. Next week, we will dive into how exactly he got caught and what happened after that in the life of one of the world's worst serial killers and monsters. So please come back next week as we talk about how he got caught, what investigators found, and everything that happened with Gacy after he was off the streets for good. Until then, 
Please come join us over on Patreon and come and join us on all of our social media pages to discuss this case and anything else that your heart desires. And of course, don't forget to be well and be better.